Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is John Pirro, and he is a shareholder at Gottlieb Rackman Reisman. And we're going to talk a little bit about the IP, about intellectual property, about how kind of the law works when it comes to the field of cannabis. And he's with a boutique firm in New York that focuses exclusively on intellectual property. And we're going to talk about how intellectual property works in this cannabis field, particularly because of all the kind of legality, complexity, both federally and state. So I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a good conversation. It's actually something I don't know a whole lot of. So I'm looking looking forward to learning and kind of expanding my knowledge on this. So John, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me and welcome to all friends of the pod to uh, borrow a term from another podcast that I I like like to listen to. I look forward to your education, Bruce. Let's try and make this as fun as possible. I have no doubt it will be fun. On the podcast, we've talked a little bit with some folks about kind of the legality issues. We've talked about it when it comes to banking. We've talked about, um, you know, kind of interstate transport and all the kind of the machinations of the state legislation versus federal legislation. So I think we have a, a general idea of this, but help us frame this up a little bit when it comes to the question of IP and educate us a little bit about how IP law works and then why this gets complicated from the cannabis field. And then we can talk really about how it's kind of impacting folks and what does it mean for the business people that are in the space once we kind of understand a little bit of the framework for IP law and cannabis. Got it. So exactly like you said, you hit the nail on the head, right? And this field, just like any other, the federal illegality creates certain wrinkles that mean that we have to be a little bit more strategic. The main thing that you cannot do, right? Let's talk about, you know, the different types of IP, right? Trademarks. Think about it as your brand. Anything that indicates source 
with respect to a certain type of good or service okay. is a trademark, right? So, you know, typically we think about a brand name, we think about a product name, but there are more unconventional types of trademarks okay. out there. For example, I think UPS owns a federal trademark registration for the color brown in relation to, you know, shipping and services like that, mm-hmm. right? Their trademark only extends to that type of shipping and services. It doesn't mean that when you go number two, you're committing infringement <laughs> yeah. of their registration. I don't have so, to pay a royalty to defecate. <laughs> yes. So the um, I told you we'd make it this interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the main thing that the federal illegality prevents you from doing, which everyone would love to do uh, in the cannabis field, is to register a trademark in the name of a strain. Everyone would mm. love to become the Marlboro of cannabis, right? Yeah. And have that recognizable brand. Unfortunately, that's what you really can't do right now. That's because trademarks are issued by the federal government. Exactly. And, be, you know, the, what happens, you know, to a lot of people who've tried it and tried mm-hmm. to do it creatively is you file a trademark application for your wonderful strain name, say, Puro Pot, yeah. right? If I went for that, I would get a refusal from the Patent and Trademark Office on the basis that. It is illegal under the Controlled Substances Act, and you know, and so you would not be permitted to proceed to registration. Now people try to start getting clever, mm-hmm. and you know, the basic summary is: if it's a plant touching goods or service, you know, if it's cannabis itself or mm-hmm. anything else that's plant touching, you're not getting that application through to registration right now. There has been you know a little bit more interesting wrinkles in relation to CBD, but plant touching, you're not going to get a registration, and so people have got. Yeah. creative and they've come up with, you know, non-plant touching, you know, kind of ancillary goods or services like smoking products um, okay. to get, try and get a federal trademark registration and using this idea of kind of expanding your goods and services a bit beyond the scope of the registration, you could kind of enforce if people are, are trademarking, if people are infringing on the name of your strain. But right now, I mean, the main thing that you could do, and this is important because you also can't, you know, sell cannabis across straight lines, is mm-hmm. you go for state trademark registrations in relation to the if you want uh, to trademark the name of a strain mm-hmm. you go for state trademark registration in any state in which you're selling mm. so yeah this is look i you know we have multiple <laughs> clients in in the space but you know and obviously besides you know strong personal feelings as to why there should be legal nationwide yeah. you know from a trademark perspective you know, there's always strategy involved in, you know, advising clients what makes the most sense for them. But there's even more strategy in the cannabis industry because of the wrinkle specific to it. And where, so when, when, when do you uncross the line? Like what you talked about, people can kind of expand it or people figure out these, these sort of creative or, or slightly expanded versions of how they do it to actually get these at some level of protection. Like where is that line? Or do you have a good example of someone who's been able to kind of make this work at some level for federally? Here's the question, right? People have been able to get their registration for their non-plant touching products, say, you know, smoking products and accessories, pipes or anything. Has anyone turned around and gone to a dispute where they've used that registration on the federal level to enforce against someone infringing on the name of their strain of cannabis on a state level? I can't really think of any examples. I mean, a fascinating thing is, you know, over on the patent side, we've had finally had our first patent litigation relating to cannabis. But I think there's limited things that we're seeing in terms of conflicts like that on the trademark side. One thing that I just wrote an article about that's interesting on the trademark side is there are a number of strains out there that infringe well-known business names. So a really good example was Gorilla Glue was a very popular strain of cannabis. And that's 
when it was just a black market, calling it Gorilla Glue, when it, what, who's yeah. Gorilla Glue going to go after? They're going to start trying to yeah. track down and sue your dealer. Door by door, yeah. <laughs> no, so yeah. that doesn't work. But you know, once it you know once it became legal in certain states, they had a party to go after who was growing that I think in one specific state. And so we're starting to see you know you're not going to mm. see all of the enforcement related to this because a lot of it's going to happen behind closed doors with yeah. cease and desist letters. But you've seen some major brand owners start going after you know, the strains. I mean, we saw, you know, there's Air Jordan. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you've seen Glorilla Glue. Hershey's has been very proactive in terms of trying to tamp down on different strain names that mm-hmm. are similar to their trademarks. And so what I would say is if you are operating dispensaries, you know, be careful that you might get a cease and desist letter because ultimately you're going to walk away from the strain name. Yeah, right. just, you're not no, going to win that. Yeah. You're going up against big brands, most likely, and the cost benefit is not really going to justify fighting back. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk to us a little bit about the so trademarks. What are the other things that come into this kind of intellectual property or protectable assets from a legal point of view? Okay, so I mean the the different boxes of IP are trademarks, which we already discussed briefly, mm-hmm. copyright protection, right? So when you think of copyright protection, you're typically thinking of you know a piece of music, you're yeah, thinking of work. a film, yeah. but copyright can protect a lot of you know anything that has a certain amount of originality and creativity uh, outside <laughs> of like say three words, right? You're not gonna be able to take a trademark name like Gorilla Glue and get a copyright on Gorilla Glue. No. But if there's a logo associated Gorilla Glue that includes some artwork, mm-hmm. you could get a copyright protection on that possibly. And so you know, just, let me just also say that you know copyright could protect all the content of a website. Yeah. So we found for a lot of our clients that are in e-commerce, you copyright your entire website infringers are lazy and they will rip off your photographs when they Mm -hmm. want to sell a similar product to you. So one interesting note in relation to and cannabis and copyright is, you know, you can't, some people are also experimenting with getting copyright protection for their logos if they're nice and distinctive mm-hmm. or potentially for their packaging if there's really artwork on the outside of it. Yeah. So that's one application to this field that I think is, it should be noted in relation to copyrights. But so that if, I, if I try to do that, if I try to copyright, you know, my packaging, my creative design of my packaging and it's clearly cannabis or it's touching the plant, that federal government's going to say no. Right? No, is you don't run into the same issues in copyright oh, because they do a much more limited review. You're not saying what goods and services you're, you know, using mm-hmm. in relation to. Really, you know, when they review a copyright application, it's almost a rubber stamping process. If they look at it and say, you know what, there's enough originality here. This isn't just two squares next to yeah. each other. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. They say, look, here's a logo. That's a really nice Rasta lion, Bob yeah. Marley's family. Yeah. I wouldn't really put some effort into drawing that. You could get a copyright registration. And then if someone comes up with a that's too similar, copyright infringement. And copyright infringement is actually a really nice weapon because the Copyright Act has built into it, you know, a certain amount of damages that are pretty onerous. So whereas infringing a trademark, you know, most of the time you're looking as, you know, a, a good result is to get that person to stop infringing. If someone infringes a copyright registration, you're potentially could get money out of it. They could have to pay damages. Yeah. So next is patents, and patents are actually very interesting in the cannabis world because you can – there are patents already that have been granted on different types of strains. Mm -hmm. There are patents regarding – you know, that are extremely valuable in in terms of methods of extraction to, you know, convert uh, cannabis flour into, you know, oil. Mm -hmm. 
we've already seen our first uh, cannabis patent uh, litigation got, got launched, I think, about a month ago. And there's also something even more interesting is there's um, a patent troll lurking and there are white knights trying Ooh. to fight that patent troll. Yes, there is a company called Biotech Institute out in California that people are concerned is going to become a patent troll. And mm -hmm. for those unfamiliar with the concept, yeah, give us talking a good, about... Good. We're talking about parties that have, you know, have really saddled uh, patent law in the courts with a bunch of litigations. Effectively, I go out, I register a patent, and rather than actually trying to monetize that patent by innovating or anything, I am just going to take that patent offensively as a weapon by suing people and effectively extorting settlements out of them or royalties out of them. Yeah. And so there's a really very, very cool GQ article, I think a year old at this point, that I would recommend friends of the pod check out yeah. in which the GQ reporter, you know, found out that this biotech institute was, you know, uh, applying for patents on all sorts of different strains on, you know, broad swaths of cannabis plants itself and was trying to figure out who was behind it. But the bottom line is this party is spending a lot of money to own a lot of patents. And there is a large concern that these people are going to turn around and just start trying to sue everyone in the industry wow. and really kind of cripple innovation. And frankly, it would be completely unfair from the beginning because one of the concepts in patent law, and I'll give the disclaimer that I'm actually not a patent bar attorney, but we yeah. have some wonderful attorneys <laughs> at our firm who are very knowledgeable types. Um, that if, um, you know, the requirements to get a patent is has to be non-obvious and there can't be prior art. You can't just yeah. take someone someone's already done and say, I'm going to get a patent on it. That's, you know, that's reasons for invalidation. That's effectively fraud. Okay. And so what's happened is, you know, this party biotech Institute is being super aggressive saying that, oh, everything we're doing is innovative, but someone saw, because apparently this happened with the human genome, that once you sequence the genome, a bunch of people got patents that they shouldn't have gotten in different parts of the genome. And so White Knight, you know, I think there are two groups mm -hmm. that recognize the potential for abuse in relation to cannabis. And so they sequenced the, you know, the cannabis genome. And what they're going to try and do is if, you know, parties like Biotech Institute or other uh, places try and enforce these patents, they're going to have evidence that these strains or you know, whatever you know, part of the genetic sequence of cannabis it is that they're trying, mm -hmm. these people are trying to protect and enforce, that they could say, oh, no, 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 sorry, that's been out since 2007. You filed your application in 2015. Let's invalidate that. So it could end up being very, very interesting. So interesting, in fact, that I, as a non-patent person, have been reading all about it and learning about it. <laughs> so who, and who funds the White Knights? I mean, I, what's, what's the... What is their motivation? What are their underpinnings? There are two different white knights. I'm not sure if one is a not-for-profit, yeah, but okay. I tell you that with the um, high stakes, you know, the amount yeah. of investment in this industry, the billions of dollars that if this part, you know, some of these potential patent trolls start getting going on the offensive, yeah. I don't think that there would be. You know, and the cost of fighting and invalidating a patent is very expensive. Yeah. We're talking, you know, easily six figures. I don't think you'd have a problem with multiple parties getting together and poning up the oh, yeah. figures yeah. to ensure that they don't have to pay an ongoing royalty to some patent troll in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah. So it could be, it could be interesting. Yeah. The the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yes. And then, uh, and then the last box that we call, you know, typically falls under IP are trade secrets. Okay. And so the example that I always love to give trade secrets are Colonel Sanders 11, you know, blend of alert, uh, 11 herbs and yeah. spices. 
I used to be a lot more familiar with that uh, until my <laughs> wife wisely has cut in down on my fast food habit. That doesn't prevent me, however, from whenever we're in the car and we drive by a KFC for me going, ooh, the Colonel, and then for <laughs> keep on driving. So the Coca-Cola recipe is also a good example. She's totally going to listen to us. I might get in slightly yeah, trouble. Yeah, exactly. Nah, <laughs> Not my fault. Not my fault. She's got, she's got a great sense of humor. We'll uh, we'll laugh about this. I'm a lucky man. Let me just say that. On the record. Right. And so the idea behind a trade secret is, you know, it could potentially run in perpetuity. If Coca-Cola had say patented its formula, eventually that goes into the you know the public domain. Oh, yeah. uh, just as we see with generic drugs. But by protecting as a trade secret, uh, kind of like a little was it a Lord of the Rings? Keep it secret, keep it safe. Uh-huh. You could you could prevent people from infringing that in perpetuity. Just clarify that for me because I think I get it. But because a patent, you have to file, you have to demonstrate and show and illustrate what it is you're trying to patent. Yes. A trade secret, you don't have to reveal the underpinnings, do you? The whole the whole purpose of it is that you do not. Yeah. And you consistently maintain it as a trade secret. So you need to have as part of your business's best practices. We're talking about whenever you hire anyone who's going to be exposed to whatever the secret yeah. is. Let's say it's a specific method of extracting. Yeah. You know, uh, a, a specific method of extracting. Yeah. You know, super high uh, THC content, yeah. better than anyone else yeah. in the market, right? Anyone who's going to come in contact with that needs to sign an employment agreement yeah. to non-compete yeah. uh, and a confidentiality clause. And then any third party say that you need to uh, develop some of the technology or to manufacture the product for you, they have to also be tied to it. Anytime you're printing anything relating to it, confidential, you know, material, mm-hmm. if you don't maintain the secret properly, you lose your claim and you could lose your secret. So it's very, like I said, practices need to be in place to maintain the secrets. So, okay, so those are kind of four boxes. Now, some, some, of, these, it's, some of these run amok with the federal legislation. Some of it doesn't. From a sort of practical business owner point of view, how do I start deciding whether or not I need or I'm, I'm going to start intersecting with some of these things. What What is it that I do either in terms of my business operations or business process or business transactions that are going to start touching these things and how do I start assessing my risk or at least figuring out where I need to be mindful when it comes to intellectual property law? As early in the process, you okay. hire an informed intellectual property yeah. attorney, preferably a boyishly good... Oh, wait, wait, sorry. I'm sorry, I forgot. We're only doing the audio. Um, you... No, I'm being completely yeah. honest, right? Yeah. I mean... You need to, the problem, you know, look, besides people in the cannabis industry that I assist, you know, I'm helping startups in all different industries. And my main, one of my main jobs, I always say, is as an educator. And the earlier that you're dealing with an IP expert, the less likely you are. I would say this, right? Look, when you're starting a business, every dollar counts. But when you're talking about intellectual property, which could end up being some of your most important assets, right? A dollar spent now could save you $10,000 later. And certainly at the point where you're looking to raise funds and get investors, one of the first things that any investor is going to do is say, okay, is your IP in line? Do you have your trademark registered? Oh, you have kind of a patent-specific business model? Um, did you file for your patents um, or did you start selling, you know, something that's supposed to be covered by a patent and then shoot yourself in the foot yeah. and you can't get patent protection anymore because, you know, you started okay. selling more than a year ago. So I just think that, 
you know, get educated as quickly as possible by talking to an IP attorney. I mean, I talk to prospective clients all the time, yeah. right? And I'm not, you know, they're not necessarily going to become a client right then. I'm not charging them for the education. And you know what happens a lot of time? You know, I believe in karma. These people go on to do great things and they circle back, you know, and I have a client, right? Yeah. But speak to someone and people don't think of attorneys like they do of doctors, right? I like to say, you know, I'm in a family, I'm the, the black sheep in a family full of doctors, right? So what I like to say, so whenever I'm at family reunions, I'm getting a lot of flack for it. And what inevitably happens mm -hmm. is doctors, you know, my family come to me and they say, hey, I need your help with this real estate issue. And I say, that's awesome. <laughs> right? You're a cardiologist, right? Do you have people who come to you and ask you to look at something growing on their skin? Yeah. Well, it's the same thing, yeah. right? So when you're considering intellectual property issues, make sure that you are talking to someone who is an intellectual property attorney and yeah. all the better if they have experience in this industry because of the specific wrinkles, because of the federal illegality affecting the ability to trademark a cannabis strain. You know, someone who's familiar with filing state trademark registrations if, that, if you're dealing in a plant-touching business. So that's what I'd say. Yeah. As early as possible, talk to an IP law in cannabis and all other businesses. Uh, a couple of scenarios or, or situations that I've seen, I'm kind of curious to understand the intellectual property angle to them. So uh, these brands like, you know, Bob Marley and stuff is coming out with now cannabis brands and they're making cannabis products products and they're, they've got all these packaging and everything. It's like, what are the dynamics for these folks? So they've got a, a brand, which is, you know, a brand out there in the world that is, I'm assuming they've got protected in various ways. Now they're getting into this cannabis stuff. What are the risks or what are the complexities that they face trying to bring these brands into the cannabis space? And do they have problems or are they protected because of the way they've set it up? All right. So, all right. So we're talking about a specific example of uh, like a Bob Marley brand yeah. that sells a pre-existing pre brand who's now coming in and yeah. So any, any, I mean, what we're seeing already is a lot of celebrities that have any association yeah. whatsoever with cannabis have their own lines, right? So there's a Tommy Chong line. There is yeah. the, you know, the Bob Marley line. So, so let's take Bob Marley for an example. Yeah. And his family owns the rights. I actually just went to the Whalers concert uh, a week ago, which was fantastic. You know, I was just singing every single word, swaying. I spent my first 15 birthdays in Jamaica. I mean, <laughs> small wonder that I like reggae yeah. and, you know, dressed in certain industries, but for Bob Marley, right? They sell shirts, they, you know, yeah. license his music and they decide to make the move into the cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to be able to get uh, a trademark registration federally okay. for Bob Marley. I think it's called like Marley Natural yeah. is their brand name. Yeah. Marley Natural in respect to cannabis, but they're going to I'm pretty sure I just checked. They have probably trademark registrations for Marley Natural in relation to smoking accessories. Yeah. And then I, I would almost guarantee you that in the specific states where Marley Natural, you know, cannabis is sold, mm -hmm. they have state registrations in each of those states. So they go right. state by state. And can you, can they, is this something people can do before? I mean, can they go in and do this in all 50 states right now, even if it's not legal in the states? Bruce, fantastic question, yeah. right? You could do that on the federal level by what's called an intent to use trademark application. But on the state level, there are only very, very specific states, I think actually two, that have any equivalent intent to use application. So I've actually, you'll see that, yes, there are certain astute mm -hmm. parties who know what those specific states are, right? And will file an application, say, up to six months ahead when they're actually going to start selling in the state, just in case someone else would come along using a similar name to uh, cut them off and lay the groundwork for their protection. Because huh. otherwise I can't, I can only do it once I've got the product, like I'm yes. actually actively selling the product. It. Yes, I can't be speculative. I can't say, oh, well, I just I want to lock this up, so I'm going to file this. 
on the state. No, a fantastic, state like, yeah. a fantastic question that I should have addressed right from the beginning, but yes, right? You need to have use in the different states. And then it gets interesting in relation to specific states because some of them rely on the federal classification of goods. So <laughs> you can't say there's no classification yeah. under the federal system for cannabis, yeah. marijuana, yeah. right? So instead you're going to be saying things like, smokable plant or something, yeah. you know, something, something along those lines. Or if it's, you know, an infused edible product, then you just get the registration for that product in general. You're not going to get it for barbecue sauce containing cannabis. You're going to get your, you know, state trademark registration for barbecue sauce, most likely. And so then what prevents, you know, dispensary or company in a local state from just creating, creating their own Bob Marley cannabis product? I mean, what, how, how do I like, think about it from the consumer point of view? How do I know that, that, that's really the Bob Marley brand versus someone who just came up with their own kind of logo and stuff and is calling it Bob Marley, you know, cannabis. Look, an infringement happens, yeah. right? So it's possible. So I'm in a consumer, you know, and there's an infringer who comes along and some disp- you know, unscrupulous dispensary and starts selling something that says Marley Natural over yeah. it. I mean, look, that's the whole reason the trademark law exists, yeah. right? You are a brand that sells quality, yeah. right? People associate your name with that that quality. You are building up goodwill. Yeah. So the whole purpose of protecting trademarks is to prevent parties from coming along, stealing your name and getting the yeah. benefit of the goodwill that you built up. Yeah. So what happens? You have to enforce your trademark. You have your state trademark registration for Marley Natural. If someone comes along and you find out that someone's doing that, you send a cease and desist letter and you nip that in the bud as quickly as you can. Yeah. So a lot of it is taking action quickly. And how and how do companies monitor this stuff? Like, how do I know? How do I know that that's happening? I'm just re- relying upon reports from the public am I out there mystery shopping to figure out what the you know what the competitors there, are doing there are different levels of how you go about doing it in certain you know there are things that we call watching services there are third party watch services you could be paying you know hundreds of you know dollars a year it's nothing crazy I mean, you get to common law searching, you know, and so essentially there are people watching for you. My clients, what they do is they go, you know, uh, as pretty frequently on a weekly basis, you know, they search for their names and they see if there's anything else out there. Yeah. And so certain people watch on their own, but it's also you can outsource that to watching services that are very, very comprehensive. And so they'll cover federal applications, they'll cover state trademark applications, they'll cover business names, um, which don't necessarily equate to trademarks if that's just the name of your business and not the name that people associate with you what we call common law. So common law is, since trademark rights flow through use in the US, common law is who's using it, which is super relevant for the cannabis industry because most people are just using it. A lot of companies don't necessarily file for the state trademark protection and you know, a fair amount of them are, you know, are cannot file for a trademark application federally. So keep your eyes open, your ears open, maybe use a watching service and do some policing on your own. Yeah. So then sort of two other big picture questions. The first one is international. Like how does this stuff kind of play out now that we're really looking at an international cannabis market and you've got Canada is now legal, uh, Israel, Germany, like you've got all these countries that are now legalizing cannabis in various ways. And then and you can answer this kind of with the other one too, which is, you know, what happens when it is federally legal? What's the, you know, assuming that at some point, and we won't prognosticate timeframes necessarily, but assuming that it goes legal uh, on a federal level, like what is the, what do people need to do to kind of prepare for that? Or does it, is it naturally going to kind of fix itself? And what, what are the kind of the dynamics that will change once that, ha- once that happens, both domestically and then internationally? So to first address, you know, the different foreign countries, you know, we have clients that are 
you know, our businesses in foreign countries that are starting to look to enter into the U.S. market. Yeah. And so you have to become, you have to be very, very strategic, right? So the same issues apply, the same issues apply ultimately. Yeah. So whereas in certain fields, you know, a lot of times we have our foreign clients and they come in immediately and take their registration and file application based off of it. You're not necessarily going to be able to do that. So uh, to address the second part of the question, which is going to be really interesting, is you know when that last gigantic domino falls, yeah. and presumably you know fingers crossed it becomes federally legal, then the uh, then I think it's going to be this green rush. People are going to rely upon their use in different states. But one of the interesting things is that you know in order to obtain uh, you know trademark registration, there has to be use in commerce, which means interstate use in commerce, which means goods going from one state to another, you know, or possibly you know people from multiple mm-hmm. states coming to one. But what's going to happen is there's just going to be a gigantic rush, and what's going to happen is when it seems like it's even getting close, a lot with the money are going to file and tend to use trademark applications, yeah. you know, months before then, uh, there's, there's strategy involved, yeah. ultimately. Without a doubt, as soon as it goes legal, there are going to be a ton of trademark applications relating to this industry being filed. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that builds up and where we are at that point and, and what's going on. John, this was great. I, so mission accomplished. So I learned a lot <laughs> and it was fun. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was really helpful. Um, I really appreciate the time. If people want to find out more information uh, about you, about uh, sort of the IP side of cannabis, uh, what's the best way to get uh, get that or, or contact you? Um, all right. So my name is, you know, Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. Last name is Puro, P is in Peter, U-R-O-W. I'm the only one of me. So if you Google me, I'm the one you'll find. And then the other thing I'd say is our web, you know, our firm name is Gottlieb, Rackman and Reisman. Our website is easy. It's just the initials GRR.com. And my email address, if you want to reach out directly to me, is my first initial J, last name P-U-R-O-W at GRR.com. And I, like I said, I'm happy to speak with anyone you know, free of charge, see if there's a way we could help and uh, go from there. Awesome. And I'll make sure that those links and email address are on the show notes here so people can click through. Uh, Again, John, this was, this was great. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and seeing how all this kind of plays out as, uh, as the states continue to convert and continue to pass legislation. And as we'll figure out what federally happens here, what it happens, but I really appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that the friends of the pod enjoy it as well. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. Thanks again. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.